You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, April 20th, 2020. Later in the program, WFHB Assistant News Director Sydney Foreman talks to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton in her second Monday segment of A Few Minutes with the Mayor. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB News Director Kate Young talks to Dr. Handel, Chief Medical Officer for IU Health Bloomington Hospital. But first, your local headlines. Indiana saw seven new deaths reported on Monday. 505 new positive cases are confirmed, according to the Indiana State Department of Health. Total deaths are at 569 cases. Total numbers are at 11,686 cases. Total tests are at about 65,000 people. This is likely an understatement due to lack of testing. Indiana's population is almost 7 million people. Monroe County reported four deaths. 114 people are reported positive with COVID-19. There are over 800 people tested in Monroe County. 23.4% of ICU beds in the state are in use. 11.4% of state ventilators are in use. Protesters gathered outside Governor Eric Holcomb's residence to protest what they call government overreach due to the governor's stay-at-home order. Over 200 people protested the order Signs compared Holcomb to a tyrant, while protesters questioned the constitutionality of Holcomb's stay-at-home order in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. On Friday, Governor Holcomb said he would extend the executive order until May 1st. According to the Indy Star, Indiana's emergency disaster law gives the governor a number of additional powers during a declared public health emergency, including the ability to control the movement of people within the disaster area. Similar protests happened over the weekend in Michigan, Ohio, and Kentucky. Bloomington City Council adopted the 2020 zoning map by names. Planning and Transportation Assistant Director Scott Robinson said district lines would not change during their April 15th meeting. With the Unified Development Ordinance update process that once we got through getting the rules uh, adopted, which we did back in uh, December and January with the Plan Commission, uh, this next step is simply just uh, updating the zoning map. And again, we were doing that because uh, the zoning districts simply changed their names. And so we need to reflect those name changes on the zoning map. None of the boundaries are changing. It's just the names. Council member Stephen Volan asked Robinson when the name changes would be completed. Robinson said the process would start with the new Indiana University Hospital location. He said all rezoning is not likely to occur in 2020. We want to make sure we let that process run with the hospital before we're looking at uh, rezoning other areas of the community. I know there's some large areas in the southwest area of the community that uh, were discussed about. Um, and, you know, we would kick off a, a public process to get input from the community about other areas. But again, we're, we're kind of looking at those focus areas that were identified in the comprehensive plan. And the hospital site is one of those areas that we're looking at, as well as the southwest portion of the community. There, there really isn't an intent by us to, you know, look at other 
uh, areas within the built-out environment uh, to rezone. But again, we would be listening to that feedback when we kick that process off. So short answer, I think it would be highly unlikely we'd get this done before the, before the end of this year, considering we have to have a public process, considering we have to take it to plan commission and get on your uh, agenda uh, before the end of the year. I think that would be a, a pretty aggressive schedule to accomplish by that time. Council members unanimously approved the rezoning by name and minor text amendments presented to the Unified Development Ordinance. During the meeting, council members also discussed an ordinance to conduct municipal government during a state of emergency in compliance with the State Board of Accounts. City Controller Jeff Underwood provided examples of emergency actions this ordinance would allow the city to take without first obtaining board approval. We're really talking about sanitation and street department and police and fire and utilities uh, and even transit that um, are those basic services that have to be go- ongoing. And if, if, if something breaks or uh, we've got to get it back up and get going or we've got to get a piece of equipment, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna waive the policies. We're going to get whatever we need in. Uh, to keep them operating for public safety. City Attorney Philippa Guthrie said the ordinance also provides city workers with stay-at-home pay, allows the mayor to waive any precedents and formalities in compliance with existing law, and allows the controller's office to approve payment of necessary expenditures. Volan clarified with Guthrie that all actions will still be approved by the appropriate board. In a way, it's kind of like a 90-day order. Yeah. That you, you put the the cones out to change the yellow curb, and you do that before you get uh, uh, a change in code just to see if it works. Right. Uh, so if this is the equivalent of that, and the decisions will still be reviewed and approved in arrears by the appropriate board when they can get to it, I'm okay with that. If it means that the decision is not going to the given board or commission that it's supposed to go to at all, I'd have a problem with that. Yeah, no, no. It, the, the actual language of Section 3 says will be approved by a board a- after the action. Guthrie said the State Board of Accounts requires such an adopted policy to avoid any possible issues with their coming audit. Council members unanimously recommended to do pass. Up next, WFHB's News Director Cade Young talks with the Chief Medical Officer for IU Health Bloomington. I talked with Dr. Dan Handel. Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region about the coronavirus pandemic. Here is our interview from yesterday. Hey, so today I'm talking to Dr. Dan Handel, Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region. So first off, Dr. Handel, when it comes to your work at IU Health, what are your needs right now when taking inventory on personal protective equipment, surgical masks, etc.? How are you holding up right now? Right now, we're doing quite well. You know, we have plenty of supplies, plenty of hospital beds, plenty of ventilators. Um, you know, we're kind of, as of today, March or April 16th, you're, we're kind of in a in a plateau, if you will, of patients. So we're we're hoping that the social distancing keeps up and really people stay at home so that you know things do not get worse. So we're cautiously optimistic at this point. When it comes to hospital beds, how many do you have at the moment at IU Health? Uh, we have uh, the, the specific numbers. It's it's just north of 300 light at Bloomington Hospital. Okay, 300. All right, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Now, what do you recommend to the general public as a safety measure to protect themselves against coronavirus? Well, CDC recently came out with recommendations of um, people wearing cloth masks, homemade masks, 
uh, in public settings, especially when um, it's not feasible for them to maintain that six feet of separation. Uh, in addition, um, the basics of, of hand hygiene, um, of adequate hand washing. Um, also, I think it's important for people to take care of themselves, uh, to eat well, get plenty of rest, particularly during stressful times such as this. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that advice. So um, let's say someone is starting to feel symptomatic with COVID-19. Um, where do they go to get tested in South Central Indiana? Well, I think the, the first step is for them to reach out to their, their primary care provider. Um, you know, for people who are IU Health patients, we do have a mechanism after they've engaged with their regular provider um, to go through our virtual hub, um, which is an online app for screening. So obviously at this point, um, we're only testing people who are symptomatic. Um, and particularly for IU Health, it's for healthcare workers uh, and people who are at risk who are IU Health patients at this time. Okay, thank you for that. Um, so why is social distancing so important with this given virus? I think what we've discovered over the past month or so is that people can spread the virus without having any symptoms. So to break the cycle of spread, it's really important for people to maintain that distance. So if they are an asymptomatic carrier, it gives their body time to, to, to fight off the virus so they don't spread it to others. And lastly, what advice do you have for South Central Indiana residents to uh, prevent the spread of this virus? I, I think, you know, as we were talking about the basic, um, the, the, obviously we talked about social distancing, um, maintaining the stay-at-home order as, as um, was handed out by the, the governor's office. Uh, and we got to honor that. I think it's really hard, particularly as we've been at it this for weeks. Uh, and with the weather getting nicer, that people are tempted to, to let up on that. But it's really, it's really important that they maintain that for the foreseeable future. And so we have a clear path of where we're heading moving forward. Now, Dr. Handel, is there anything else you want to add before we part ways? I think the last thing I want to say, I can't be more proud of our team members here at IU Health. Um, you know, it's been very, um, very stressful times, and their willingness to step up to meet the needs of our community and really adapting to the, the constant changes as we learn more about this has been nothing short of admirable. County Attorney Jeff Cockerell presented an ordinance to extend the COVID-19 emergency declaration during the April 15th County Commissioner meeting. The declaration extends the emergency until May 1st, 2020. Commissioner Julie Thomas said the deadline is in keeping with the state. We always work um, on these in conjunction with uh, the health department, who's working with the Indiana State Department of Health. But also, uh, this brings us in line with um, the governor's um, stay-at-home order and, and his uh, emergency orders. Um, so uh, this keeps us right at the same at the same pace. So, and it may get extended again. So it, it, this is just one one step of many. Commissioners approved the emergency extension. Also during the meeting, Cockrell presented policy regarding the use of the food and beverage tax funds for support of county tourism-related businesses. This policy, I think, serves three different purposes. Uh, the first purpose is to, it can ha to have it contain the information that was required in the State Board of Accounts uh, guidance to us, which would include a, a determination that the, that the, the food and beverage tax 
uh, fund is a more closely tied fund to the purpose of what we're doing and that the expenses are a result of the emergency declaration. It also serves the purpose of stating what the, what the criteria we're going to, to look at, and those are uh, to determine if the business is sufficiently tourism related to qualify for funding under this program, to substantiate the actual loss uh, directly related to the economic effect of the COVID-19 health emergency, to determine the immediacy of the need for support in lane of federal, state, and local programs and other income readily available to the applicant, and fourth, to determine necessary expenditures to prepare the business for full operation once the emergency subsides. Cockerell said each applicant will be interviewed by a county commissioner. He said following the interview, a recommendation will be made to the county legal department, then to be reviewed at a full council meeting. Cockerell said a request for review can be made by any denied applicant. County Technology Director Eric Evans described how a county business can apply. If you go to our front page, which is www.co.monroe.in.us, you'll see in the red breaking news bar here uh, on the second link, the Monroe County Food and Beverage COVID-19 virus relief application. There's a bit of a preamble at the start that it describes what the um, aid package is for and who qualifies for it. And then there is a fillable form that you can just fill out right on the website with all the questions that has the uh, information that we need to process uh, any aid request. There is also the option, if you look here, to select a Word document. If you're maybe not comfortable submitting that over the web, you can click here, print it out, uh, mail it in by snail mail uh, to the courthouse or uh, email it to fbsupport at co.monroe.in.us. Commissioners unanimously approved the FAPTAC fund policies. Up next, Sydney Foreman talks to Mayor John Hamilton and her new segment, A Few Minutes with the Mayor. Community members posted questions on our social media via Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, posing questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton about current issues. Today, on A Few Minutes with the Mayor, John Hamilton answers these questions. So our first question comes from the user Hypocrisy Now, and they're asking, is there contact tracing in Bloomington? And they would like to know what their odds are at shopping at the different Kroger's, and they have heard news of employees being sent in from Terre Haute at Walmart, and they want to know what their risks are, and is anyone keeping track of these people coming in? So, thanks. The um, There is contact tracing, uh, which is done to try to minimize risk for people when a, when a uh, case has been found to to try to identify those who had connection with that person. We we do it. For example, we had a firefighter who tested positive, and we did contact tracing to identify all the different people they were working with or in connection with in different ways. And happily, I can actually report nobody got sick after that, and that person's back at work, so that's good. So that contact tracing does happen. It's led by the health department uh, uh, to do to, to identify ways uh, that people might become infected. I, I will say um, at this point, you know, we, we have community transmission 
And the most important thing is really to continue the physical distancing and to recognize that anyone could be infectious even when they're not feeling sick or looking sick and that each of us could be infectious even when we're feeling fine. Um, so that physical distancing is what's so important to do all the time. Uh, and, and of course, we're encouraging mask wearing now according to the health guidelines. On In terms of individual stores, um, as far as I know, the city does not have uh, information about employee uh, changes in a given store here or there. The health department uh, may, uh, though I'm not aware of that. And I think the thing I would look for anytime I go to a store is are they are they using good protocols to keep people physically distant in the store uh, from each other, from their staff? Are they protecting their staff with physical distancing? Some are using masks or other physical barriers. Uh, and, and just making sure the store is taking this seriously. Uh, that's what I would look for as I'm, as I'm out and about. Though mm -hmm. I'm not out and about these days. But. <laughs> um, so unfortunately, that was the only question we had from the public this week. Um, okay. So the rest of these will be questions that WFHB has kind of put together. Great. So our first one that we have is we know a lot of people are being laid off in the community right now. And we're wondering if Bloomington has a number for the unemployment rate. I don't, I don't have a county unemployment rate yet, but I know it's going to be high. We've had thousand plus, I'm sure, people laid off and filing for unemployment when the country is, is what, it's 22 million people filing unemployment claims in the last four weeks. That's an, that's an unprecedented number uh, in terms of scale and speed, uh, and, and we certainly are part of that. So we know we have uh, enormous pressure of so many people who've, who've lost their work and are applying for unemployment. It's one of the reasons we wanted to get the rapid response fund moving, which it is to help get money in, into small business and nonprofit hands, uh, help bridge them to the federal money. Certainly important that the federal uh, support keep expanding uh, when the first small business uh, loan program was fully used, they need to move quickly to expand that to make more available. It's just a, a free-for-all in terms of employment. So I don't know, I haven't seen a number from Monroe County yet, but I'm sure it's going to be double digits and very significant very quickly. And for those who have lost their jobs, and especially with, you know, the unemployment offices are very overwhelmingly busy right now, what do you have to say to them who need help or can't get through to the office? And what advice would you have for these people? Well, I guess just patience and keep keep trying. Um, uh, it is important to file for unemployment. Um, we do hope some of the businesses will actually keep people on employment uh, because you can actually get a loan turned into a grant from the federal program if you, if you do retain employees. So we do hope employers can identify ways to keep people employed, but I know they need to monitor their cash flows and cash needs and all that as well. So do you think the city will have to appropriate more than the $2 million that was appropriated from the FABTAC to help local businesses through this economic crisis? And if so, how will the additional appropriation funds affect the convention center expansion? The community definitely needs way more than 2 or $2.5 million uh, to recover from this uh, economic maelstrom uh, that's related to the health emergency pandemic. We definitely need many, many, many times more than that. Uh, and what the city is trying to do is really just some kind of emergency bridge funding so that individuals and businesses can get to the bigger federal funding, which is so important. 
Uh, and we're already trying to double the two and a half million by getting private sector match so that it can go from two or two and a half to four or five million mm -hmm. uh, in terms of impact. And it's possible we'll, we'll get a demand on the bridge funding side that encourages us to look even deeper than that. Um, the, the convention center project uh, will come back around, but it's going to be a number of months uh, as things settle out. There's nobody coming to conventions right now, and we'll revisit that uh, in a few months. But I'm, I'm not so much worried that we won't have the funding for that as I'm, I'm worried that as a city, we're not allowed to go into debt. We, we can't print money. We, we have to have a balanced budget. And I do think we need to be ready for a couple challenging years ahead with the economy doing what it is. So uh, I would just encourage all of us to reach out to the state and federal folks, uh, particularly the federal folks who are the and do the stimulus package. And that's so important to get that money into our community. We have thousand plus people who've lost their jobs in the last three weeks. and mm -hmm. uh, They need help. We have small businesses who have lost their markets and their customers and they need help. So that we can come out of this, uh, come out of this well. Now, we will come out of this. I'm confident we'll come out the other side, uh, and uh, we want to be positioned to help our, our our community thrive again, which I know it will. Uh, we just want to try to minimize the damage in the meantime. So the next question we have here is: There's a lot of talk among Republicans who want to reopen the economy, and health experts say that that could be a dangerous thing to do right now. Um, so what will the city of Bloomington do if the federal or state government decides to reopen the economy prematurely? Uh, if, if what the state or national level recommendations are, if those are not consistent with what we think the local needs are and the best direction locally, we will not hesitate to move forward locally uh, separately from that. Um, you know, the state has extended it to May 1, the emergency and the stay-at-home orders, and that's, we think, prudent. We do need to just keep monitoring what's the infection rate and what's the, uh, the, the the curve. What does that curve look like? And let the science and the health tell us about that. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. It shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be a political issue of people um, calling on other political people to step up and do this or that. It should be a science and safety issue, which we are committed to here locally. Is there any possible way that the city could predict a time when the local economy would reopen? Well, it won't be till May. Uh, and I think it's really important to recognize that when we say reopen, it's uh, everybody understands that it's not going to be flipping a switch and everything starts back the way it was. Um, there can be a lot of nuance and and gradations and, and uh, changes bit by bit as we find ways to accept that this could be done here with a school or this could be done here with this industry or with this grocery store or with this sector or this could be done with this part of the economy. It's likely to be a, a very detailed and, and um, uh, organic uh, and discreet kind of process. And, uh, you know, I'm glad the governor is working with a bunch of other Midwest states to look at this together uh, and base it on science, which is so important. Testing availability will help a lot. It will change what you can do depending upon how much testing you have to surveil, to watch for problems and to diagnose problems when they hot spots appear and that kind of thing. So that's still a very much a, a work in progress. We're still waiting for the federal government to move forward on that as we wish they would have. Um, so uh, there's a whole bunch of moving parts, but I think the key thing for folks locally to know is we're 
we're working together very closely um, as all these partners to try to identify how we can keep evolving, responding to the health emergency, but also help our economy recover as best we can. The last question we have today is that you recently had a virtual ribbon cutting ceremony marketing the opening of the Switchyard Apartments. And these apartments are aimed at being affordable. So what constitutes something as affordable housing? Well, affordable housing can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. The Switchyard Apartments, uh, I believe, are below 80% area median income uh, rentals. I don't I don't have the dollar amounts uh, put to memory, but they're meant to be affordable to somebody who makes uh, about 80% of the area median. But, you know, uh, housing, affordable housing can be a big range of things. Some of it's for people who have zero income or homeless uh, who, who, who just need uh, a home that uh, they may not be able to pay very much for others. Maybe people who are double income families, but they just can't. They need help uh, to have a, of a, an apartment that works for their whole family that they can uh, that they can afford. The, the traditional definition of affordable is you shouldn't pay more than 30 percent of your income or your housing costs. So it depends on what your income is, but you shouldn't pay more than 30 percent. And in Bloomington, a lot of people pay more than 30% of their of their income for housing, and that means it's not affordable to them. So please let that uh, facility open right next to Switchyard Park, too. And I think you kind of touched on this, but is there anything else further that you would like to say about why affordable housing is so important here in Bloomington? Well, we're a very expensive market, uh, the most expensive market in the state. It's very difficult for people uh, to live in Bloomington. Uh, many people find the both rental and uh, ownership housing, uh, inaccessible. And we need to be a community that can welcome people to live in our community who work here, who study here, who retire here, who, who are raising a family here. And um, we need to continue to expand the options of the housing with, with more housing being built and rehab rehabilitated and with more affordability being assured. So. Uh, we've done hundreds of units of uh, housing that's now permanently affordable, which we're very proud of, but we got a long way to go still. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, while the, you know, the residents' numbers are down a little bit now with so many students gone, but uh, we still have a very high-cost market. And I would say, look, it's a good problem to have, to have a high-cost market. It means that people all want to live there. It's a very different problem if you have a low-cost market where nobody wants to live and, and there's no market for housing. So it's just we have to channel the power of the market and the desire for people to live here into spreading that availability much wider. And that's what we're working hard to do with places like Switchyard and uh, uh, housing for homeless and, and uh, more more uh, subsidized housing and more. We're doing a, we're doing a project uh, on the other side of Switchyard Park on Walnut Street to reconvert the space that used to be night moves into a new housing project that will offer some more affordability as well. So we got to keep keep working on it every day. Do you have a question for Mayor John Hamilton? Comment that question on this coming week's post for a few minutes with the mayor to have your question answered. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Sydney Foreman. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. 
For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Kate Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 